Chapter One, Part Two of Lady Molly of Scotland Yard by Baroness Orsi. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Nine Score Mystery, Part Two. At first, it was understood that Lady Molly should only go down to Canterbury after the inquest if the local police still felt that they were in want of assistance from London. But nothing was further from my lady's intentions than to wait until then. "'I was not going to miss the first act of a romantic drama,' she said to me, just as our train steamed into Canterbury Station. "'Pick up your bag, Mary. We're going to tramp it to Ninescore. Two lady artists on a sketching tour, remember, and we'll find lodgings in the village, I dare say.' We had some lunch in Canterbury, and then we started to walk the six and a half miles to Ninescore, carrying our bags. We put up at one of the cottages, where the legend, "'Apartments for single respectable lady or gentleman,' had hospitably invited us to enter, and at eight o'clock the next morning we found our way to the local police station, where the inquest was to take place. Such a funny little place, you know, just a cottage converted for official use, and the small room packed to its utmost holding capacity. The entire able-bodied population of the neighborhood had, I verily believe, congregated in these ten cubic yards of stuffy atmosphere. Inspector Measures, apprised by the chief of our arrival, had reserved two good places for us well in sight of witnesses, coroner and jury. The room was insupportably close, but I assure you that neither Lady Molly nor I thought much about our comfort then. We were terribly interested. From the outset the case seemed, as it were, to wrap itself more and more in its mantle of impenetrable mystery. There was precious little in the way of clues, only that awful intuition, that dark unspoken suspicion with regard to one particular man's guilt, which one could feel hovering in the minds of all those present. Neither the police nor Timothy Coleman had anything to add to what was already known. The ring and purse were produced, also the dress worn by the murdered woman. All were sworn to by several witnesses as having been the property of Mary Nichols. Timothy, on being closely questioned, said that, in his opinion, the girl's body had been pushed into the mud, as the head was absolutely embedded in it, and he didn't see how she could have fallen like that. Medical evidence was repeated. It was uncertain, as vague as before. Owing to the state of the head and neck, it was impossible to ascertain by what means the death-blow had been dealt. The doctor repeated his statement that the unfortunate girl must have been dead quite a fortnight. The body was discovered on February 5th. A fortnight before that would have been on or about January 23rd. The caretaker who lived at the lodge at Ash Court could also throw but little light on the mysterious event. Neither he nor any member of his family had seen or heard anything to arouse their suspicions. Against that, he explained that the wilderness, where the murder was committed, is situated some two hundred yards from the lodge, with the mansion and flower garden lying between. Replying to a question put to him by a juryman, he said that the portion of the grounds is only divided off from Ninescore Lane by a low brick wall, which has a door in it, opening into the lane almost opposite Elm Cottages. He added that the mansion had been empty for over a year, and that he succeeded the last man, who died, about twelve months ago. Mr. Lydgate had not been down for golf since witness had been in charge. It would be useless to recapitulate all that the various witnesses had already told the police, and were now prepared to swear to. The private life of the two sisters Nichols was gone into at full length, as much, at least, as was publicly known. But you know what village folk are. Except when there is a bit of scandal and gossip, they know precious little of one another's inner lives. 
The two girls appeared to be very comfortably off. Mary was always smartly dressed, and the baby girl whom she had placed in Mrs. Williams' charge had plenty of good and expensive clothes, whilst her keep, five shillings a week, was paid with unfailing regularity. What seemed certain, however, was that they did not get on well together, that Susan violently objected to Mary's association with Mr. Lydgate, and that recently she had spoken to the vicar, asking him to try to persuade her sister to go away from Ninescore altogether, so as to break entirely with the past. The Reverend Octavius Ludlow, vicar of Ninescore, seems thereupon to have had a little talk with Mary on the subject, suggesting that she should accept a good situation in London. "'But,' continued the reverend gentleman, "'I didn't make much impression on her. All she replied to me was that she certainly need never go into service, as she had a good income of her own, and could obtain five thousand pounds or more, quite easily, at any time if she chose.' "'Did you mention Mr. Lydgate's name to her at all?' asked the coroner. "'Yes, I did,' said the vicar, after a slight hesitation. "'Well, what was her attitude then?' "'I am afraid she laughed,' replied the Reverend Octavius primly, "'and said very picturesquely, if somewhat ungrammatically, "'that some folks didn't know what they was talking about.' "'All very indefinite, you see. "'Nothing to get hold of, no motive suggested, "'beyond a very vague suspicion, perhaps, of blackmail, "'to account for a brutal crime. "'I must not, however, forget to tell you the two other facts which came to light in the course of this extraordinary inquest, though at the time these facts seemed of wonderful moment for the elucidation of the mystery, they only helped ultimately to plunge the whole case into darkness still more impenetrable than before. I am alluding, firstly, to the deposition of James Franklin, a carter in the employ of one of the local farmers. He stated that about half-past six on the same Saturday night, January 23rd, he was walking along Ninescore Lane, leading his horse and cart, as the night was indeed pitch dark. Just as he came somewhere near Elm Cottages, he heard a man's voice saying in a kind of hoarse whisper, "'Open the door, can't you? It's as dark as blazes!' Then a pause, after which the same voice added, "'Mary, where the dickens are you?' Whereupon a girl's voice replied, "'All right, I'm coming.' James Franklin heard nothing more after that nor did he see any one in the gloom. With the stolidity peculiar to the Kentish peasantry, he thought no more of this until the day when he heard that Mary Nichols had been murdered. Then he voluntarily came forward and told his story to the police. Now, when he was closely questioned, he was quite unable to say whether these voices proceeded from that side of the lane where stand Elm Cottages or from the other side, which is edged by the low brick wall. Finally, Inspector Measures, who really showed an extraordinary sense of what was dramatic, here produced a document which he had reserved for the last. This was a piece of paper which he had found in the red leather purse already mentioned, and which at first had not been thought very important, as the writing was identified by several people as that of the deceased, and consisted merely of a series of dates and hours, scribbled in pencil on a scrap of notepaper. But suddenly these dates had assumed a weird and terrible significance. Two of them, at least, December 26th and January 1st, followed by 10 a.m., were days on which Mr. Lydgate came over to Ninescore and took Mary for drives. One or two witnesses swore to this positively. Both dates had been local meets of the Harriers, to which other folk from the village had gone, and Mary had openly said afterwards how much she had enjoyed these. 
The other dates, there were six altogether, were more or less vague. One Mrs. Hooker remembered as being coincident with a day Mary Nichols had spent away from home. But the last date, scribbled in the same handwriting, was January 23rd, and below it the hour, 6 p.m. The coroner now adjourned the inquest. An explanation for Mr. Lionel Lydgate had become imperative. End of Part 2 of the Nine Score Mystery